entrepreneurship is more of a mindset than it is a particular business. And I think if you shift from thinking, you know, I'll do what's handed to me and instead switch to, you know, I'll do whatever I think I'm capable of. And that might be a different thing today than it is next year. Now, all of a sudden, the whole world opens up. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Hamilton Chan's parents told him he could either be a doctor or a lawyer. In fact, his mom even had a mini breakdown when he deferred law school for a year to work at J.P. Morgan Investment Banking. He promised her that he'd go back to law school after the year was up, and that's precisely what he did. Years later, his investment banking friends were making millions of dollars a year while he was slogging away doing due diligence as a corporate transactional attorney for an extremely prestigious law firm in Los Angeles. And his mom asked him why he didn't stick with investment banking. But Hamilton tells us you can't blame anyone but yourself for your life decisions. And Hamilton did experience outstanding success as a lawyer. He graduated from Harvard Law School, worked at a prestigious law firm in Los Angeles, represented Kobe Bryant, and worked at MGM Studios. But ultimately, his legal career hit a dead end, and he was not happy. He realized it had taken what he was good at and polished it to such a point that it became something he no longer enjoyed. At one point, he was skimming hundreds of pages of documentation and writing about 15 pages of memos every single day without any time left over to even pick up a magazine or read a book on the weekend. Entrepreneurship was calling. Hamilton wanted to be able to pursue creative endeavors, practice strategic thinking, and get out of corporate life. He told his family that he was very unhappy as an attorney, and his sister suggested he become a salesman at the family business, Charlie Chan Printing. After his whole family erupted in laughter, his mom and dad said they could actually use some help. And although he had no experience in sales, Hamilton thought he could figure it out. Plus, he'd get to make business decisions and be involved in an enterprise that carried a lot of meaning and history for him. After working in the family business, Hamilton went on to launch a tech startup. Then, Loyola Law School approached him to start an executive education program now called LLX. Hamilton was responsible for co-creating the vision behind it and coding a brand new interactive platform to host it on. He now also teaches a six-week class on negotiating and really considers his role at Loyola to be the culmination of his life experience and a true labor of love. Hamilton's tips from his off-the-beaten-path career, are learn to negotiate. You can leave a tremendous amount on the table if you are not skilled at negotiating. Satisfy your curiosity and try new things. Realize that the business world is at least 90% networking. Make conscious choices to do the things that we should do. The brain does such a phenomenal job of making sense of the world that it constantly discards contradictory information, and that's actually what helps us stay in a bad relationship job or situation. Craft the life that you want. Hamilton loves being able to spend time with his two daughters and his wife, plus have time for recreation and work on projects that he finds personally meaningful and fulfilling. As for Hamilton's view on the meaning of it all, he says the end purpose of life is love. And that is why I value relationships so much. There's a ton of value and love and loyalty and family and hardship and success in this episode. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Hamilton Chen, 
Who was your childhood hero? Okay, this may be a very cliched answer, but I'd have to go with my dad. I think that my dad was just an extraordinary figure for me to look up to throughout my life. He still is. He's still kicking. But he really taught me a lot about how to be a person. And so I always looked up to him. He's just unfathomably kind, affable, patient, understanding, flexible, supportive. And it's one of the things, you know, as you'll hear through my entrepreneurial journey, I did end up working, spoiler alert, in the family business. And one thing that a lot of people say about joining a family business is, was it difficult working in the family business? Did you clash with your dad when you ran the company? And that is one thing where I always have an easy answer, which is, no, it was absolutely smooth sailing working with my dad. The business itself was difficult, but my dad, the way that he is, the kind of person he is... Um, he really made the whole thing unbelievably easy from that perspective. I actually read an article back from 2009 that uh, that your one of your college friends wrote yeah. for the Los Angeles Magazine, yeah. where and your dad he quoted your dad saying that when when you started working there, it was unconditional surrender. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's my dad with his typical style of uh, exaggeration. Is the best form of storytelling. <laughs> but yes, um, honestly, my dad is the most pliable person I've ever met in my life. Mm. And you know, when I think back about kind of my childhood and how I grew up, my mom was originally from Vietnam. Um, she's Chinese, but from Vietnam. And she grew up during the Vietnam War and left Vietnam during that time. And when I hear the stories of people who emigrated from Vietnam during that time, it's, it's, it's just really, really dark and difficult stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't surprise me that when my mom came to America, she was basically ready to kick butt and take names. Mm -hmm. And um, perhaps on her list was my dad. And so she was really, uh, you know, she did fit the mold, honestly, of the tiger mom. And she did have to have control and structure in her life and in our family's life. Mm -hmm. And my dad was the exact opposite. He was the pillow. He was the cushion. And so that made him, you know, I needed both. Um, but he was the teddy bear in my life. And I think it really bore out even when we worked together. He's always said that he's my biggest fan, mm -hmm. that he thinks I can do anything. It was kind of like some of the crazy stuff that you hear people like Tiger Woods' dad say or Serena Williams' dad say, where they just had total belief in their child. Mm -hmm. That nuclear power inside of you is such a powerful furnace that builds with burns within. Mm -hmm. And having that come from my dad and my mom um, really, really propelled me to do the things that I've been able to do. I was going to actually ask you a little bit about that um, in terms of what kind of influence your parents had on what you thought you could become when you got, quote, older. So mm -hmm. we'll, ta we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But I just want to talk more about your dad because I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was really fascinated by, by his journey because mm -hmm. he's, when he came over here, he ultimately got a job as a life insurance agent. Yeah. Was successful there. But then your mom saw his success and said, hey, we should start a different business. Yeah. And then he went into the printing business, which we'll get into a little bit later in, in the story. But it's mm -hmm. it's some there's something about, and you even mentioned it a moment ago, the immigrant mentality when your mom came over here mm -hmm. and she was in a position to kick butts and kick butt and take <laughs> names. And it's very interesting. And you know, we the people refer to it as the immigrant mentality, but I think it's it's a it's a mentality of anyone that is looking at the people that have it good that were born here and don't recognize the advantage that we have and 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 they do and so therefore they're going to take advantage of it and yes and um i i met a a guy who was a cuban refugee driving uber mm. And he shared a story that when he walked across the border, because it's a very, I'm, I'm short, I'm shortcutting the story because it's a really, mm -hmm. it's a crazy story. I write about it in my book, actually. Mm -hmm. But, but long story short, he crosses over into Brownsville, Texas, and his name is Fidel. And I said, Fidel, what did you, what did you feel? Mm -hmm. And he said, Michael, I felt freedom. 
<laughs> I could I could work three jobs if I wanted to. <laughs> right, that's his definition of freedom. You yeah. know, because freedom Cuba, to work. <laughs> yeah, because he could only work one job, and and that's yeah. it. You know, he can. And he, it was basically one thing that he could do. Yes, and and he was like, you know, you guys have opportunity born at your feet. Yeah, yeah. And most people don't take advantage of it. So, your parents raised you with that that you were you were born here in America in the land of opportunity and and you to entrepreneurial parents so what influence did they have on what you thought you could become growing up you know it's your story is really poignant and i think it really highlights the fact that the great irony is that the folks who come to this country are the ones who appreciate the American dream the most. The people who don't have it always want what they couldn't have. With my parents, I think that just as you point out, they were making do as as much as they could. My dad was an insurance salesman for equitable life insurance. He was, uh, it's the one trophy that I see that I've seen bearing his name that we had in our house was a ping pong champion at Equitable (laughs) Life Insurance. And one other thing that I remembered about uh, my dad during his time there is that his face was on the billboards for Equitable Life Insurance. And we had photos of him where his face was blown up to like, you know, 100 foot size. And he's just smiling there and saying, you know, welcome to Equitable. So it's, it really speaks to um, them just trying to make do however they could. And when you don't have the educa- education and you come from a freewheeling culture, you come to this country and you're like, all right, let's make things happen. So mm-hmm. they're very pro-risk and have very much a can-do attitude. However, for their kids, what they want usually is the exact opposite. So what they want is stability and predictability. And I think career-wise, that's how my parents looked at it, like so many people did, which is, wow, why don't you go get a job as a lawyer or as a doctor? Those were basically the two paths laid before me. And in fact, the family running joke was, should everything fail and you do really poorly in school and all hell break loose, you could always come back and work at the champ printing. And we'd all go, ha, 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 that'll never happen. And again, spoiler alert, that's exactly what happened. Um, even in spite of my academic and career success. Yeah. Um, so they, it was presented to me, do you want to be a doctor or a lawyer? My, I had an older sister, I have an older sister who chose uh, doctor. <laughs> she wanted to go uh, to medicine. And so I remember in ninth grade, I was like, okay, well then I want to do something different. So I guess I'll be lawyer. And mm-hmm. that's how it was decided in ninth grade that I would go the law path. Mm. I think in retrospect, I've really learned that your parents do their very best to set you on the right course, but ultimately you still have to hold the rudder by yourself and decide which direction you want to sail in. Mm-hmm. And I think that story was highlighted. I remember I was in law school or in college and I had been uh, accepted to Harvard Law School. I deferred my admission so I could work at JP Morgan. And really it was because it was my ticket to work in Hong Kong. And I specifically wanted to uh, try working in Hong Kong, living in Hong Kong. I was born in the United States, but I grew up watching Hong Kong movies and soap operas and action films. I just thought it was the bomb to be there. And so I applied for the job. I got it. And I told my mom, hey, I'm going to defer law school for a year so that I can go and work for JP Morgan Investment Banking. And I remember telling her this on vacation when I was home, and she just sank to the bottom of my bed in my bedroom. And she said her life was a failure that her son was never going to go get a graduate degree <laughs> and that um, I would just do banking forever. And uh, so I investment said, no. Investment banking, not, investment like a, banking. not like a personal teller. Not, you know? <laughs> not like a teller. And um, I, I, I told her, no, I promise you, I will go back to law school. I will graduate with a degree. Don't you worry. Years later, I'm practicing as an attorney. And I tell her, you know, my investment banking friends are making millions of dollars per year now. And here I am slogging away doing like, you know, due diligence as a corporate transactional attorney. And she said, well, why didn't you stay with investment banking? (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just, you know, actually her question is really apt because it's like, well, aren't I in control of my own life? Yes. Your parents can put a heavy thumb on the scale, but ultimately you get to decide. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't blame anyone for your own life decisions. Was there much opportunity growing up for self-advocacy? Did they give you that kind of sense of autonomy growing up? Or was it more like they were kind of guiding you 
in that direction toward the lawyer or doctor. And I asked that question mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I read Tony Shea's book. I don't have uh-huh. you ever read Tony Shea? Yeah, he used to live across the hall from me at Harvard. Oh, yeah. We well, were in the same year, same yeah, dorm. Yeah. Yeah. Same so, house. so same story, kind of, in, in, in one sense that his mother and father wanted him to become a doctor or a lawyer. And he ends mm-hmm. up, you know, dropping out and starts Link Exchange and then yes. ultimately, you know, Zappos. And, yes. um, and everybody knows how well Zappos is doing now and all of that Incredible. stuff is his book, Delivering Happiness. And, yeah. and, and so there, in his story, in his case, there, until he got to college, really, there wasn't a whole lot of, of self-advocating yeah. freedom. Um, it was kind of designed for him. Yeah, I think the story of my wife and my mom giving me one of two choices, law or medicine, pretty much says it all, which is like, these are the two tracks, forget about everything else. I I don't want to demonize her, though, as I say it. It's really all that she knew was, uh, I just came from a war-torn country where atrocities happened and I can't even repeat or reflect back on my childhood. So when I tell you that this is a good path, why don't you just listen to me? <laughs> um, I will also say though that you know some people like to ask me like, did your mom make sure you did your homework? Did she know all your grades? And actually, she she knew none of that stuff. Um, so in that respect, it was very much you just get it done, and I'm not going to micromanage you whatsoever. So yeah. she never said do your homework. She never said why'd you get a B plus. It was always mm-hmm. just assumed that I would do yeah. whatever the heck I could mm-hmm. to succeed. Mm-hmm. It's funny though, you say the Tony Chase thing. So I'm going to give a, an ever so slight um, dig on Tony, uh, who is a great guy and who is super gracious um, in, in taking me to, on a company tour at Zappos in the early days as I checked it out. It was, it was really cool to see what he's done and it's truly unbelievable. But one of the things that I talk to founders about sometimes is the notion of the origin story and the mythology. And one of the um, stories about Tony Shea is how he knew he was an entrepreneur early because he ran a pizza shop in his dorm. Um, that was Quincy House. I lived in Quincy House, same year as Tony. Like I said, he lived across the hall from me. And they talked about how the pizza business in, in, in these origin stories about Zappos and Tony Shea, the pizza business was so, so amazing. And all the kids like jumped at the pizza and they sold boxes and boxes of it. Well, having lived there, I can tell you the pizza <clears throat> was not the greatest. And we all <laughs> complain about it. And I don't remember many being sold. <laughs> that does not take anything away from what he accomplished at Zappos. But I, it's, it's one of those things where you can't necessarily believe all of the origin stories, whether it's yeah. eBay and the Pez dispenser, whatever, they make for a really nice narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, that pizza was okay. Mm-hmm. And narrative <laughs> actually is the most important thing that that any that we can control. You know, there's the there's the actual truth and then there's what we make of it. And absolutely and and we can make it good or bad, whether it's for you know a marketing campaign for a business or when if it's our own self narrative, right? Absolutely. Which which oftentimes we we take a something an experience negative most more often than not that happened in a in a nanosecond, and we extrapolate it into this long drawn out dramatic narrative of us as as a victim. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. When we can easily, with a little bit more effort, make a different decision, a different choice, and be the victor in that scenario. Who was the first non-family member to breathe life into your potential? There was a professor of psychology at Harvard, where I went to college, and um, I was kind of thinking about some of my future when I getting to junior senior year and I was thinking, all right, should I try this investment banking thing or should I do law or should I do something completely entirely different? I, I was starting to wonder. And this one professor said, you know, there was a study done on people who faced major life decisions. And what they did was they checked on whether the people ended up following the tried and true path or doing the off the beaten path thing. And so they had basically a few different subject groups people who'd stuck with what they were doing, the safe thing, and then it was a success. People who stuck with it and it ended up being a failure. People who ended up going off the beaten path 
and being successful and people who went off the beaten path and ended up failing. And, and then apparently a, a control group of people who never faced a major life decision. <laughs> um, and when they looked at the results, they found that the people who went off the beaten path, whether they succeeded or failed in their own mind, ended up feeling happier about that decision than the people who, who didn't. And it speaks to something about regret and about like checking out what's under, you know, behind door number two. And so I've kind of lived my life that way, um, following that little bit of advice, which is basically, look, if, if you have an inkling about something, go and pursue it. Go mm -hmm. and satisfy your curiosity, give it a shot, try new things. And so that's how I've approached my career. And um, it's led to quite a meandering path, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. My friends, I just returned recently from keynoting the California Association of Hospital Admissions Managers Conference for their 51st anniversary. I was the opening keynote. It was such an honor to share the master the key message with them. And afterwards, we sold out of all 50 books that we actually brought down there. There were over 100 people in attendance, but we brought 50 books down and we sold out of every single one of them and others headed to Amazon to buy the book. So I want to encourage you to pause the show, head over to Amazon, read the reviews, pick up a copy or two of Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning and live life on purpose. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Now back to the show. Before we get into your meandering path, because it's an it's a very interesting one. I mean, you could make a movie about it. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that like follow that curiosity, tease it out. So like what how did you do that? When you had an so, ink, how would you follow the curiosity until until it, you know, you've hit a dead end? And what would you do then? Yeah, it's you phrase it perfectly because you will run into certain dead ends. And I think that's when the choice becomes the easiest, uh, obviously. For me, I did the JP Morgan investment banking thing in Hong Kong because of curiosity, because I wanted to know what it was like to live there. Leading up to it, I did spend my summers in college working in Hong Kong, one summer for JP Morgan, another summer for a market research company. And I definitely got the cultural experience. I speak Cantonese fluently. And it was amazing that first summer when I worked for a local market research company. The following summer, working at JP Morgan and then going back full time, it was a, a, the expat experience. And so I was like, oh, wait a second. All I'm doing is hanging out with Americans, but in Hong Kong. And I didn't particularly love the way that we as foreigners were necessarily interfacing with the locals. It, it felt, uh, I don't know what would the word be, but maybe a little bit arrogant, maybe a bit out of touch. And so I didn't, I didn't like that interaction that I saw. And I realized that the orange of the cultural experience was basically squeezed dry for me. And that um, I was ready to come back and watch NFL football and be American in America. And that I kind of satisfied my Joneses of being out in Hong Kong and living that life, which was amazing. Um, so I satisfied my curiosity in that respect. When it came to legal practice, what I thought to myself there are a couple of things that I thought. One was I will go through with law school because I like the idea of having like a particular body of knowledge that um, would give me capability in life. And I thought as between law school and business school, business school was more about developing skills, um, strategy skills, interpersonal skills, soft skills, intangibles versus um, law school, which is really hard skills, like exactly what is the statute of limitations, and exactly how do you formulate breach of contract. Um, so I felt like going to law school would do that, but I wanted to cement that knowledge. So I had predetermined in my own head. Once I was in law school, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm pretty sure I don't want to be a lawyer for the long haul. However, I want to work at a law firm for at least two years so that I can actually for at most two years um, so that I can really cement the knowledge. <laughs> and so I ended up working for a corporate law firm in LA called Munger, Tolson, Olson. Um, the name partners, Charlie Munger is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. It was a really cool gig and I can get into it. But basically, I, I had a chance to represent Kobe Bryant in his purchase of a basketball team in Italy. And I did some Berkshire work and uh, you know stuff for Southern California Edison and Universal. But ultimately, it wasn't for me in that I realized that I had taken what I was good at and polished it to such a point that it, it became 
essentially bastardized and became something that I no longer enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So I was good at researching and writing and cogitating and formulating syntheses and writing things out. But by the time it got to the point of writing half-page long paragraphs with 17 semicolons, beginning them all with notwithstanding the foregoing, I realized that this was actually no longer floating my boat. It was too dry. I felt like I had so many other gifts that I wished to pursue. I wanted to be able to think strategically. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be creative. I wanted to think about product. I wanted to be able to manage people and to lead people and be managed. I wanted to set direction. And I felt like as a lawyer, it was more like papering the deal when the deal was already decided. So even if I wanted to continue, I knew I just couldn't. I was writing and reading so much. At one point, I was estimating that I was breezing through skimming several hundred pages of documentation a day and writing you know, maybe 15 pages of memo type stuff per day. And I just had it. I couldn't pick up a book to read on the weekend. I could not flip through a magazine article. I was so sick and tired of reading and writing. And that's when I thought, I got to stop this. Mm, And that mm. helped me choose that life direction and career Mm. direction. I love that you what you said there, because it ties directly into one of the core principles of my book that I wrote. It's called Master the Key, Mm. Story to Free Your Potential, Find Meaning and Live Life on Purpose. And it's a parable. Mm. And one of the pieces of the key is giftedness. Mm. And the janitor who is one who is the main guide to the main character, Steve, who is a uh, failed financial advisor, says to says to him that you need to free yourself from the pursuit of status and achievement. And when you do that, you'll be free to create in a way that you've never been able to create before. Yeah, wise indeed. And it's very counterintuitive in, in the way that the world exists today, in particular Western civilization. Yeah. But, I, but I argue that it's probably the number one reason why 70% of workers are actively disengaged at work every single day. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating that you've done that because the argument could be made that Hamilton you're you're making a mint you got you graduated from Harvard you worked mm-hmm. at JP Morgan you went back to Harvard law school you you mm-hmm. interviewed at 26 law firms you got 26 <laughs> callbacks yeah and you could have worked anywhere in the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and you ended up at this prestigious law firm in Los Angeles you represented Kobe Bryant you then went on to MGM Studios yeah i mean hamilton <laughs> You should just stay put, man. What are you doing? I mean, like, hello. And and then to fast forward, after graduating Harvard, J.P. Morgan, Harvard Law School, then this law firm, then MGM Studios, you end up working for your family's printing business that's failing, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Like, who in their right mind? You know, but I I totally get it though. Uh-huh. You know, most people are like, "What the heck?" Including your <laughs> friend who wrote yeah. that article in the Los Angeles yes. magazine, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I think from the outside, it will look like total delirium. Like, what in the world would convince somebody? This guy's to having a mental breakdown. Leave, leave all this stuff that's been set before him. But again, I go back to the. Sometimes you don't even have a choice. Sometimes you just feel it inside and you know that this corporate life ain't for you kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a certain element of confidence. And I think this is really important where you feel that you'll figure it out. I coded a decent amount when I was a little kid. I just enjoyed it. I didn't even call it coding. Now that's what folks call it, hacking coding. Back then it was like computer programming. And I did computer programming in BASIC because that's what we used. I did it in Pascal because I took uh, AP Computer Science back in high school. And that's, that's the language that we used, Turbo Pascal. And I even did a little bit of assembly language. But when I ended up going to college and working, it was back into the liberal arts world. And so I didn't do any of that stuff, but I always loved it. Then I ended up starting a tech startup and... To continue, I guess, the story of my career a little bit further, in 2011, I went through the tech incubator Y Combinator. 
And I was branded as a sole non-technical founder. And I even looked at myself that way, non-technical, in the sense that I didn't know how to code in JavaScript or Ruby or Python or you know, any of those programming languages or C. And so I just had to hire help to be an engineer. Um, but ultimately, it really is about how you look at it. And it looks, and one of the things that I ended up doing was I took a class called Web Development Immersive in a coding bootcamp and I learned how to code. And one of the things that you learn, I relearned how to code basically. One of the things that you learn as a core skill is it doesn't matter what language it is. Ultimately, you just have to learn how to solve problems. You just have to learn how to be resourceful. And so one of the key things you need to do is nowadays with the tool of Google, you need to learn how to look up programming challenges yourself and solve them online. Um, So it doesn't matter if, if someone told me, hey, now that you've learned Ruby, go and code in Python. If you're too focused on the content of what you know, as opposed to the skill of bouncing back, being resilient, being resourceful, you'll have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you feel like I've solved things in the past, I'll solve things in the future, then you will have that confidence that will buoy you to, to take risks. Mm-hmm. And so I think similarly, when I started Charlie Chan Printing, I started working at Charlie Chan Printing, it happened on a family trip where I told my family I was very unhappy as an attorney. And my sister said, why don't you be a salesman? You'd be a great salesman. And I was like, salesman? Are you kidding? After all this stuff that Mike Lynn just described, go be a salesman? And she's, I was like, where would I be a salesman? And she said, why don't you be a salesman at Charlie Chan Printing? And my whole family erupted in laughter, like, so silly, so ridiculous. And that's actually when my mom and my dad turned to me um, and said, you know, we could use your help. The family business was kind of failing. My dad had a partner in business and they were having issues working with one another. And what are we going to do with the family business anyways? And right then, I, I think I felt an inkling that I had a purpose that I could fulfill. Mm-hmm. This was actually very personal. I had worked at Charlie Chan Printing since I was five years old. I knew all of the employees as my aunts and uncles. I've, I went to all of their weddings. <laughs> we had employees that worked at Charlie Chan Printing for 30, 40 years where this was their only job ever. And, and I had worked side by side, shoulder to shoulder with them. So that's why I thought, well, who knows how big I could make this thing? And being an entrepreneur sounds awesome. I'll get to make the business decisions and I can help out my family. And that's why I went that way. Mm. Have you ever heard of the concept of self-efficacy? Mm, talk to me about it. I know the two individual, yeah. yeah, Dr. Albert Bandura wrote Mm -hmm. a paper in 1977, Mm. uh, you know, about obviously there's efficacy, which is the the ability to produce a desired result, right? Yep. And then there's self-efficacy, which is one's ability to do that, Mm -hmm. right? So it's Mm -hmm. it's still it's self-directed. And many people don't like you are a highly self-efficacious being. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Um and and because a lot of people would not have, they don't start with that framework of I can just I can figure it out, mm-hmm. um, and so people just don't right. They yeah. they they stop, and it, and that has that's directly tied to the whole giftedness thing because we've been taught that we should pursue the Harvard, the J.P. Morgan, the, the MGM, all of that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But when you stepped away from that pursuit of status and achievement. You ended up creating things that were above and beyond what you could have ever created at the law firm. You just didn't wouldn't have had the capacity. <laughs> well, thank you. That I mean, speaking about interpretation, it really is how you look at. It. I mean, one person I, I would not begrudge any listeners who thought, "Man, that was the wrong choice, dude." I, I know in my heart of hearts it was absolutely the right choice for me, but mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with somebody else choosing a different path based on their needs, wants, values, and identity. I think there was a quote from a professor at Harvard Law. Uh, He joined, he had worked at a very prestigious firm called Wachtell in New York. And it's it's the firm that pays the most um, by like double any other firm. And they were like, you made partner and yet you came into academia 
why did you leave? And he said uh, this thing that's been um, said by others, which is it's like winning a pie eating contest where the prize is more pie. Hmm. And that's what I talk about when I say, you know, doing something to the point where it becomes bastardized almost. Mm -hmm. I felt like for me, at least for me, practicing law at that level required a tremendous tolerance of the doll. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just couldn't do it. On the self-efficacy thing, I will say that... So I'd like to give myself credit to a certain extent, but really when it's no choice, it's so much easier. You're just like, I know I can't do this. Right. And I will say also having examples that you could point to people who made the leap and succeeded, that, that helps shift the paradigm in your mind as well. I remember going to a wedding of one of my law school classmates and this woman had graduated with me from law school and worked at an ultra prestigious firm in New York also called Pravath. And she left. And I said, oh, what are you doing now? I expected she would say she went in-house as an attorney, joined some other law firm, did some other prestigious thing, joined McKinsey, I don't know. And then she said, oh, I now run a Taekwondo studio. <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh, how, how Are you like a Taekwondo expert? Have you been like mastering this since... A young age and doing this for 16 years. And she said, No, I picked up Taekwondo a year ago mm-hmm. and I opened this studio with my master. I'm mm-hmm. like, Wow, that's crazy. I will also say that my college buddy, whom I roomed with, also went to work in investment banking and he went to Bankers Trust. And then later he told me that he was going to run a greeting card company. And that he just bought it off the internet from a business broker. And that he was thinking about moving into manufacturing screws was another side business he was going to get into. So when I saw these folks with gilt-edge resumes and sparkling white collars, working in white shoe firms, blue bloods, going off onto these beaten paths, I was like, wait a second. Who am I to say that I can't do something mm-hmm. like Charlie Chanfrenny? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I ended up going. And, and you just actually outlined the two main points of Dr. Bandura's self-efficacy theory. You have mastery experiences, and then you have the social mimicking experiences where you see other people and you're like, I could do that. If they did that, I could do it. And it gives (laughs) you the freedom to, to step into that. And then you realize also that no matter where you are, whatever corporation you're working on, you're, you're just on an iceberg that's cracking underneath it because they could fire you at any time, you yes. know, and then you're yes. left in the lurch anyway, right? So, like, you might as well take control of your destiny. Absolutely. Kind of the modern, also the modern definition of an entrepreneur is that the subject matter is not cemented. So, you know, Y Combinator, for example, even says that they will admit entrepreneurs into the program who don't even have an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whether you're reinventing yourself, your career, or your company and pivoting into different things, the idea is entrepreneurship is more of a mindset than it is a particular business. And I think if you shift from thinking, you know, I'll do what's handed to me and instead switch to, you know, I'll do whatever I think I'm capable of, and that might be a different thing today than it is next year, now all of a sudden the whole world opens up. And sometimes the biggest shift in the mind is believing that you are actually capable of these other things. Mm-hmm. I remember that, you know, when I was an executive coach, I was coaching somebody and I thought, you know, they're, they're, they're fine as an entrepreneur. There are certain issues. They're relatively capable. And, but I never would have thought that they would be capable of doing something like writing a book. And just last week, I was wandering around Barnes and Noble, an actual brick and mortar store. And I saw on the best selling business books, a book from my former coachee. And the light bulb went off in my head, which is I had previously put on such a pedestal writing a book. It's such an impossible thing. How can anyone write 300 pages? What incredible discipline. I could never manufacture that. Like how much, how much capability must you have and insight in order to write a book? And then when I see somebody that I know personally write a book that's sitting there on the best selling counter, I'm thinking to myself, Oh my gosh, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah, totally, totally. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. 
based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur holds you to call. You're taking all of this experience, the experience you've had at, you know, at, in law school and, and investment banking and, and being a small business owner hmm. in the startup world, and you're, you've kind of packaged it all together. And now you're at Loyola yeah. teaching executive education. Yeah. And you're teaching, you're bringing the concept of law to non-lawyers. Yes. yes. So, so what was the, the catalyst for this? What was the aha moment that woke you up and said, you know, this is probably something that we should do? You know, I have always been in education in one form or another. First of all, going all the way through law school. But then after, you know, during college, my big activity was running an after school education program for children in Chinatown in Boston. Hmm. And I even did that from college all the way through law school. And after law school, I ended up teaching at that coding boot camp um, where I took the web development class. I taught all of their all of their business classes. So I taught business development. I taught negotiations. When I was in law school, I went through the Harvard Law School program on negotiation and even got to share uh, the stage with Roger Fisher, who wrote Getting to Yes with William Urey. He was still teaching at Harvard Law and I was a teaching assistant. And it was just really, really... It was my favorite class in law school. Um, in spite of the fact that I went for hard skills, I ended up coming away with the soft skills. And so I started teaching negotiations um, in Los Angeles. So I always had an interest in education. Then I also had an interest in technology since I was young and also even working in company. There's a lot of advanced technology in, in printing presses and in typesetting and graphic design and all of that. So I had an interest there as well. I was basically in 2016 is when I sold my businesses and I moved into executive coaching. And it was when I was doing that, that I was approached by the Dean of Loyola Law School, who uh, graduated from Harvard Law with me in 99 and who also worked at my law firm with me, Munger Tolls. And he approached me through a friend and said, hey, would you have any interest in helping Loyola Law School start a brand new executive education program? It would be a way to rev- generate revenue for the law school. And I thought, you know what? When you say start something, my, my ears perk up. And that's because I do see myself fundamentally as an entrepreneur, someone who can craft a vision, who can execute on a plan, who can be resourceful. And so this was really the perfect marriage between my legal background and also my entrepreneurial background. Hmm. And so they said, look, we'll make you a professor and you'll be the head of executive education. You're going to be a one-man band, like go figure it out yourself. And I was like, that's exactly what I want. Judge me by my results and I'll go build this thing. So I ended up coding a brand new platform. It's basically our own version of an online education program. And it collects credit cards, it streams videos, it has multimedia experiences, and it's highly interactive. We even cold call students through the browser on their on their site. I hired a couple of engineers who had worked on some Y Combinator projects before, and I worked with them to build this thing. I'm super duper proud of it. We launched it several months ago, and the growth in our second cohort compared to our first cohort was more than quintupled, getting rave reviews from students. So it's, it's been a true labor of love and it's the most ridiculously vertically integrated thing where I'm the businessman, the vision behind the program, along with the dean, of course, and the faculty at Loyola. But I'm also the guy who coded the website and I'm also the professor in the first class on negotiations. Mm. And it's a six-week online course on negotiations Totally do it at your own pace, featuring more than 65 videos of me teaching people how I negotiate as someone who went through the Harvard Law School program uh, on negotiation, but who also was a small business entrepreneur for 16 years and had to negotiate for my life every day on the job. Yeah. So that's the course. Yeah. And not just not just that, but also negotiate to help Kobe buy a, a <laughs> basketball team and negotiate Hollywood actors and all the prima donnas in Hollywood's contracts. Yes. I mean, so your yeah. people who participate in the course are getting like 
next level exposure to 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 negotiating. So I mean it it's it's available at what's the website that people can go to? It's LLX. That's the name of our executive education program. LLX.LLS.edu. And uh, yeah, it definitely is the culmination of my life experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, we even have professional actors reenacting negotiation scenes, and some oh, of it cool. is relating to startups and stuff. Yeah, it's really, really highly produced. We wanted to make it master class level quality. I think we achieved that. So it's it's been fun. When you think about your experience and the people that you've worked with, your colleagues in the investment banking world, clients in the investment banking world, and same thing and in the law world and Hollywood and then in, in small business and startups and all that stuff. When you think about your holistic experience, how have you seen people undermine their own potential? Well, I mean, I do think that speaking of negotiations, you can leave a tremendous amount of career potential on the table if you don't negotiate well. Um, one different turn can make all of the difference in your life. I look back at this one thing, you know, one question I get a lot from law school students here at Loyola Law School is, you know, what do I need to do in order to succeed? You know, give me some tips. And one of the top things that I say is you do need to learn how to network. And I came from this very academic oriented background. So I was always the kind of kid who was like, I'm I don't need to go talk to the teacher. I'll just get all the right answers. And then there's no needing to talk to the teacher portion of, of stuff. And so I, I felt like the world was super meritocratic in that sense. And that if you just produce the best work, if you get all the right answers, quote unquote, um, that everything will work out per- perfectly. And I've definitely shed the layers of that onion over time and realized that, no, that, that might be true K through 12. Um, but you really better wake up and realize that the business world, at least, is like 90% networking. Um, when I was doing the deal with Kobe, I remember talking to his dad, who was very involved. He was a great guy, Joe Jellybean, Brian. And he called me up and he's like, Hey, Hamilton, why don't you come over to the house and like meet the fam? And we can like talk, talk more stuff. I have like a zillion questions for you on a whole bunch of legal things. And I was so green and also so like principle oriented. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to step on the toes of the agent, Rob Palenka, now the general manager of the Lakers. I was like, you know, I, I'm just the attorney of the law firm. I, I'm junior. I, I, that doesn't seem right. So I turned down the invitation to go to Kobe's house and talk to the family. And I look, I, I'm grateful for that experience in the sense that even though it would have been a completely different career, probably, had I taken that meeting. Um, I learned the value of taking advantage of the opportunities when they're presented to you. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only such story I have in my life. There are other moments where I brushed with greatness and I just kind of played my cards my way. Mm-hmm. But now I really see the world as all about the connections and mm-hmm. all about the people. You have to come at it, of course, from an authentic place. You have to be a sincere person. And so that's, of course, the way that I approach it. But at the same time, you can't be so in your shell, so afraid of reaching out that you let opportunities slip you by. Mm, I think that's incredibly valuable advice, as as has been your your stories and experiences that you've shared thus far on, on the show. And I encourage people to definitely reach out to Hamilton and and go to the Loyola site and and you know register for this class. It's a it's a bargain. Relative to the experience that you're getting from this guy, where it's, else can they interact with you online? I mean, you know, we are rolling out a bevy of classes at Loyola Law School. So not only do we have the online thing, but we're also going to have on-campus courses. And we are also going to have um, on-site courses where we go out to companies. So I have flown out to talk to large companies and give like an on-site negotiations course to a team of people. Hmm. Um, that's a lot of fun. And on campus, if you happen to be in Los Angeles, we're running workshops um, regularly that will teach people things like introduction to intellectual property law or teaching them about trust in the states and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether you're a lawyer or a non-lawyer, these are still useful things. I I actually do believe that it should be part of the core curriculum in college to learn a little bit of the law so that people are educated and know how to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I'm also 
in the very early innings of potentially preparing a class, uh, the dean has mentioned to me that he'd like, love for me to teach, which would be online and would be on startup law. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may be able to find more of me there, but just go to llx.lls.edu and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to find it. Okay, cool. The last three questions that, that I ask every single guest, um, the first of which is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess, which are a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. And, uh, and turn them into a superpower, what would it be? If you could pick a skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Okay, so I have a special term for my skill set. Um, I call it human understanding. And the only people who've uh, really heard this term from me are my kids and my wife. But what I feel like I can do is I feel like I can understand what people are thinking. I think Malcolm Gladwell in Blink, um, I think that's the right one. uh, He mentions this ability that people have to thin slice. And there was a study where people were shown photos of people uh, that were just candids when they were mid-speech. It turns out that our brain is so good at interpreting that when someone smiles, we just see the smile. When someone laughs, we just see the laugh. But in between, a camera that just takes random shots will find the most awkward-looking faces, Mm -hmm. and they look like nothing. Mm -hmm. However, one in every 200 people or so will actually be able to identify the emotion that the person was in the midst of projecting. And I feel like I have some version of that where I feel like I know where people are going before they say a thing. Hmm. I remember once my wife told me that she was speaking with a friend of hers, a girlfriend. And before she got any further, I said, she's probably going to have an issue with her husband. Is that right? And she's like, oh my God, how did you know that's what we're talking about? So that kind of moment happens to me all the time Hmm. where I feel like I already know this story before people have opened their mouths. So I would love to turn that into a superpower. That's amazing. You could actually, that would be an interesting assessment to like take, to go on a picture and try to select the right emotions if you're right, you know? Yeah, like a new kind of EQ test. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Totally random question that's very specific to you. In your investment banking world, this is not one of the final three questions. This just popped in my head. That's okay. You're an investment banker. You, you pro- I have, I've known other investment bankers. You probably work you know, 125 hours a week or yeah. whatever, 130 yeah. hours. There's 130. Mm-hmm. 130, okay. So there's, there's 168. 168. So yeah. what did you do with your free hours? Slept. That was it. Um, I remember, man, there were so many good investment banking stories, but I remember that my mom came to visit me and my dad uh, for, for a couple of weeks when I was in Hong Kong. And I told my boss, uh, um, I said, uh, hey, my parents are coming to visit. And he, he could read um, that this was a precursor to, hey, can I get like a light schedule for the next couple of weeks? And he, he cut me off right away. He said, you know, my parents came to visit me last year in Hong Kong for a month. And I managed to have a breakfast and a lunch with them. And so he, he just set the tone right there. Like, don't expect to take any time with them. And in fact, even like greeting from the, him, them from the airport and sending them off, he said, I'll send a limo to pick up your parents and to send them back to the airport. But don't, don't waste time going. And in fact, that's, that's what happened. My parents were like jazzed about the limo experience. They're like, this is really cool. <laughs> but my mom was not jazzed seeing me come home. I knew when it was time to leave work because uh, that was around 5 a.m. every morning. Um, I knew it would be around the, around the right time because when I left J.P. Morgan to go catch a cab, that's when the newspapers were being delivered. So when wow. the newspapers were delivered in the wee morning hours was when I would leave. And then I would go home and my mom would see me during this vacation time of hers. And she'd see me go straight to bed. And I'd basically sleep for about four hours. And then I'd get up at about 9.30 and then jam off to work and get in by 10. So basically, I was sleeping five hours a night or less, uh, seven days a week, because it was the same thing on Saturday and Sunday. Oh my So gosh. It, it was super crazy. That's part of the investment banking life. Wow. Yeah, that's not for me, for sure. What are three lies that Lakers fans believe about their chances to win? That no, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> what are uh, what are? I'm a Warriors fan, so oh, um, wh- which uh, fun um, game against you know, the Clippers fun, last night? Yeah, I know yeah. it's brutal. Yeah, the Clippers are that good. So 
And we uh, can't say Lakers without me thinking about LeBron <laughs> and thinking about Hong Kong, but I'm not going to go there. Not today. What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from taking the action we know we need to take? Uh, okay, on the spot here. I will say the three lies that we tell ourselves. One definitely is we can't do it. Two is that it won't lead to success, <laughs> uh, which is similar but different. And then three is that there are other things that we should be doing our, with our time, like the opportunity cost element. So, I mean, human beings are incredible excuse making machines. And I think this goes to the Kahneman versus confirmation bias. One, one of my, the cool classes I took in college was called Vision and Brain. I was a psychology major. And we learned that if you track the way the eye moves, it isn't smooth. It actually darts around constantly. It doesn't go from point A to point B in a nice, smooth, gradual line. In fact, we're just, our eyes are jumping around all over the place constantly. And that's why optical illusions work because we fill in the blanks and we make sense of the world. Um, I was talking to a parent at my um, daughter's tennis match last night, and he was talking about how his daughter had a cochlear uh, ear implant and how it wasn't a hearing aid, which would just amplify the sound frequencies that we're used to hearing. It was instead something that translated those sound frequencies into direct electrical stimulation of the brain via an electrode. And he said that those sounds, if we could hear them, would be totally unintelligible. It, but his daughter was able to completely naturally, beginning at the age of seven when she got this implant, start interpreting those sounds as, as words, but they don't, wouldn't sound like words to us. Hmm. And so the brain is so plastic and it makes it does such a phenomenal job of making sense of the world that it wants to discard contradictory information constantly. And so that's what leaves us going on the same route forever and ever. Staying with a bad relationship, for example, if someone's in one, or staying with a bad job, or staying with bad habits. It's because homeostasis is like job number one for the brain. And it just wants to keep things like nice and neat and fitting all in a straight line. Mm. And so that's the number one thing that's working against us when we choose not to do the things that we should. Mm. I love that. Did you ever take any classes with Clay Christensen when you were at Harvard? He taught, I think, at Harvard Business School. So, okay. so no, no yeah, okay. Innovator's did you, Dilemma. Is did, you ever read his, did you ever read his book, um, How Will You Measure Your Life? I have not, no. So that's no. the that's the last question, but I ask okay. it I ask it in a in a u, kind of a unique way. So yeah. give me your give me your favorite one of your favorite art forms first. Favorite art forms? Uh, I enjoy music, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. What kind of music? Uh, I love pop stuff. Okay. U two, Eurasia. I don't know. Uh, I, li- I like so, to play piano. <laughs> okay, so okay, yeah. let's let's do let's do a piano. I think a, a mm. piano is better. Okay, so. Okay. It is, it's a hundred years from now mm-hmm. and you've left a set of instructions for a pianist to compose a piece that answers that question. How will Hamilton Chan measure his life? What kind of piece have you instructed the pianist to compose? Wow. Uh, I'm going to go with the hundred year forward version of Liebestrom. How about that? Um, Liebestrom is by Franz Liszt. It's like the last good song I knew how to play from high school that I still play to this day, driving my family absolutely mm-hmm. up the wall. Liebestrom, Liebe is love, and Liebestrom means love's dream, I guess, in, in German. And I ultimately believe that the end purpose of life is love, that that is the ultimate human quality, and that that's why I value relationships so much. You know, I think I live my life this way. I have thought to myself like, oh, okay, I haven't made you know gazillions of dollars. I'm certainly not world famous in any respect. What have I actually achieved? What have I actually accomplished? And the thing that I have reflected on as being most proud of is having crafted the lifestyle that I have. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of time to be able to spend with my two daughters and with my wife. I have a lot of time for you know recreation, and I also work on stuff that I find very meaningful and purposeful and interesting. 
And that for me is the love that I have for my own life. Mm. Um, so I mm. guess if I were to measure myself by a song, it would be Love's Dream and it would hopefully be an interpretation of the beauty of my own life. I love that. that this has been a great conversation, inspiring conversation. Awesome. Did you know the word believe actually means to ah, love? Right, I love so, that. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah. Believe um, mm. So, so when you believe in yourself or you believe in others, it's an act of love. I love it. I um, love it. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show today. I look forward to staying in touch and finding ways to collaborate again in the future. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a blast. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.